Hey everybody, it's Pastor Brian, the campus pastor at Mount Hope's Belmont campus. It's good to talk to you again. This week in our sermon, we talk about the reality that when our perspective on something changes, uh, our conclusions about that thing change as well. You'll hear in a little bit what we mean by that. But the same is true in our relationship with God. We have certain perceptions about God, perspectives on who we are and who God is. And when those change, our conclusions about God change. So we better be sure that our perceptions and our perspectives about God and ourselves are correct. I'm glad you're listening. I hope you'll listen closely because I believe that God has something he wants to say to you. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be there together this morning in just a couple of moments. So if you want to go ahead and put your thumb there or a finger there, uh, we'll, get, we'll be there in just a second. Let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. Have you ever been in a situation? Have you ever been in a situation where your perspective on something has changed? And so your conclusions or your thoughts about that thing have also changed. Have you ever been in a situation where you had a perception of something or you had a perspective on something, and so you drew certain conclusions, but eventually your perspective changed or your perception changed, and so then you, uh, drew, now you draw very different conclusions. For example, there was a portion, uh, there was a period in my life where I knew everything that there was to know about being married and having children. And then what happened was I got married and I had kids and my perspective changed. And so then my conclusions about what I thought I knew about being married and having kids also changed. And you've had something like this happen in your life. Maybe there's a restaurant that you really enjoy going to. And your perspective is, your perception is, is that it's a great place to go and eat. And so you tell other people, you should really go to this restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant ever. And then one time you go, and the host isn't very nice to you, and the service is slow, and the food comes out lukewarm, and then you leave that place, and all of a sudden your perspective about that entire restaurant and that entire experience has changed, and so your conclusions change. You used to say, this is the best restaurant I know, and now your conclusion is, this place is really falling off. Have you ever seen the pictures that sometimes people will put up online where they're at famous landmarks or famous monuments, and they take their picture at a perspective where it appears as if those landmarks or monuments are not as great as they actually are? So someone might be holding the faces of Mount Rushmore in the palm of their hand or holding uh, the space needle in the palm of their hand. You can take a picture of the landmark so it looks much less impressive than it actually is. Is But if you were to go and visit and your perspective were to change and you were to stand right next to that landmark, it would look far more impressive than it does when your perspective is different. Because when your perspective changes on something, your conclusions about that thing also change. Maybe you've had it happen the opposite way where you had a perspective on something that you thought as you were standing from a distance, it was great. Maybe you thought a person was great as you knew them from a distance. Or maybe you thought uh, a, a, a place was great that you had never been to. I grew up hearing about Plymouth Rock as a kid in the Midwest. And I thought to myself, when I would picture what Plymouth Rock looked like, that these pilgrims would pull their boats into this beach and there would be this massive cliff 
this massive rock that was the Plymouth Rock. And so I had this perspective in my mind of what Plymouth Rock is and what it would be. And then you go down to the South Shore and you see Plymouth Rock. And it can, be, uh, it can really take the air out of your sails when you see a rock that is barely more than a pebble. And that is the great Plymouth Rock. And so our perceptions change on things, don't they? Last summer, uh, Lori and I stood in uh, the middle of the Sistine Chapel. And I stood there standing at that room, which the entire room is one giant piece of art. And I thought to myself, there is no possible way that a picture could capture this place. The beauty of this place and the majesty of this place, it, 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 there's no way a picture could capture this. And maybe you've had that, that happen to you too, where you had a perception of something. I always knew the Sistine Chapel was nice, always had to learn about it, always knew one of the Ninja Turtles painted it. But, I, but when I stood there in that place, my perspective changed, and so my conclusion about that place changed. You know, the same sort of thing happens in our relationship with God. Everybody has a perspective, everyone has a perception as to who God is and who we are in relationship to God. And based on that perception, based on that perspective, we draw conclusions about who God is. And so I do this and you do this and our world does this. We have a perspective on who we are and who God is. And based on that perspective, we draw conclusions about God. Now the danger in this is that our perceptions, they change, don't they, over time. Our perceptions are a bit fickle. We stand far away from something and we draw conclusions about it. We see someone from a distance and we draw conclusions about them. We get close to that person and we meet them and our conclusion changes as our perception changes. And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. As we draw closer to God, our perspective about who God is and who we are changes and our conclusions change. And so we better be sure in our lives, in your life and in my life, we better be sure that our perspective about who God is and who we are is correct. Because if our perspective about God is not correct, then the conclusions that we're drawing about God in our life are also not correct. And so we better work hard in our lives to make sure that our perspective is correct on who God is and who we are because when it changes, our conclusions about who God is will also change. There's a perspective that many people have in our world on who we are and who God is, and uh, they draw a conclusion about God based on that perspective. I would say I believe that this principle is very well accepted in our society, and this is it. I am a good person who deserves good things from God. That's the perception that many of us have about who God is and who we are. I'm a good person who deserves good things for God. Therefore, the bad things I experience mean that God is bad, weak, or non-existent. This is a perspective that many of us have about who God is. And we draw conclusions about God based upon this. And I, of course, know folks who believe this about God. I think that this sums up in many ways how much of our culture thinks about God and who we are, that we are good people. And if God is a good God, then we deserve good things from him. 
If I experience bad things in my life, if I experience pain and sorrow and difficulty, that means that God is either bad or he's weak and irrelevant or he's non-existent. And I think many people in our culture and many of us have written off God in our lives because of this very fact. Because if God is good and I'm good, I deserve to receive good things from God. But the reality of my life says I actually experience a lot of things that aren't good or I see things in this world that aren't good. So the only conclusion I can draw based upon that perspective is that God really doesn't have any effect on the daily life of this world or he's bad or he just doesn't even exist. That's the only conclusion I can draw from that perspective. It reminds me of the conclusion that a rabbi named Harold Kushner drew. In the 1970s, he wrote a little book that was a a big bestseller called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in that book, uh, the rabbi draws a conclusion. He says, we're good people and and God is a good God. So the reality of bad things that happen in life means, and this is the conclusion that he draws, that God is sitting up in heaven but he's kind of like a mad scientist who created something that got away from him. And he would love to make it perfect again. And he would love to stop all the bad things. He just doesn't have the power or the ability to do it. So he's sitting up in heaven. His hands are kind of tied. Everything's spun out of control on him. And he'd love to make everybody's life better, but he just doesn't have the power to do it. That's the perspective that many people in our world, in our culture have. God, we're good. God is good. He should be giving us good things. When I experience bad things, it must mean that God is irrelevant in this world, that he's weak, that he can't do the things that he says he's going to do, or that he doesn't exist all together. The question that I want us to talk about this morning is, is that the right perspective about who God is and who we are? And if it's not, what is the right perspective? Because our ability to understand that relationship and our perspective on that will determine whether or not you and I draw right conclusions about who we are and who God is and how we are to interact with him. And to do that, we're going to continue walking through uh, this book of Nehemiah, this story that we've been walking through over the last few weeks together. If you've been with us at any point over the last uh, six weeks or so, you know that we're in this story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And it's a story where God's people, the Israelites, they found themselves in some trouble. They've been enslaved for a few hundred years, first by a group of people called the Babylonians and now by a group of people called the Persians. Their city, the city of Jerusalem, was totally destroyed. But now under the Persians, they're starting to rebuild. They've rebuilt the temple in the last 100 years. They've rebuilt portions of their city. And now here's this guy, Nehemiah, our hero of the story in this book, who is helping to organize the people to to finish rebuilding the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And at this point in the book, they've actually completed the wall. It took 52 days, and they finally have completed this giant project that they've been working on. And Nehemiah and the people, if you remember, we talked about this last week. After the wall was all done, they got together on the first day of the seventh month of, uh, the first day of the seventh month, and they all got together and they read the law together. Do you remember this if you were with us last week? They all got together on the first day of the seventh month and they read the law together. And something happened to the people when the law 
was read. What I want us to notice as we come into Nehemiah chapter 9 is what day it is in the month, in the seventh month now. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled. And listen to how they were assembled. With fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So now here in Nehemiah we, Nehemiah chapter 8 begins, and it's the first day of the seventh month. Now Nehemiah chapter 9 begins, and what day of the seventh month is it? What day is it? It's the 24th. That means 23 days have gone on since the beginning of that last, meet, that last gathering and now. Now why is this significant? Well, here's what happens, if you remember what we talked about last week. The people all gather on the first day of the month. The law of God is read. So that would be all the rules God had given the people, as well as a history of God creating the earth and God leading the people out of, out of slavery in Egypt, sustaining them through the wilderness, and bringing them into the promised land. All of that was read before the people. And when the people heard all of that, do you remember how they responded? They responded with weeping and with mourning. They were saddened by this whole thing. Something happened in the reading of that law and in those stories that left the people mourning and weeping and in a bad place. And that was on the first day of the month. Now, does anyone remember what the, what the priest said to the people in that moment? What did the priest tell the people to do when they saw them weeping and mourning in that moment? The priest came to the people and they said, don't weep and mourn. You need to be rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is your what? Strength, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so they said, this isn't a time to weep and mourn. You need to be rejoicing. In fact, if you look at the law that we just read, in the seventh month, there are three festivals, three holidays, back to back to back, that are all times to rejoice in God. So now's not the time to mourn and weep. You should be rejoicing. In fact, it was the first day of the seventh month, which we see in the book of Leviticus, is the festival of the trumpets. It's a day for everyone to get together and have a giant party celebrating who God is. And so the people did what the priest said, and they had their party. And then a few days later, they would have celebrated the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which people still celebrate today, which would be a great celebration of God's atoning work on behalf of the people. And then a few days later, they would have celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which some people still celebrate today which would have been a giant eight-day celebration about how God had sustained the people through the wilderness over the course of 40 years. So this whole period from day one of the seventh month to day 23 of the seventh month for the Jewish people is to be one of great rejoicing and celebration. Now here we see them on day 24, the first day that they no longer are forced to be rejoicing by the law. And what do the people do? They don't just go on their way and live their lives. They go right back to where they were on day one. That tells me that something extremely significant happened. Two weeks ago, it was 73 degrees. How far away does that feel right now? How long ago does that feel that it was 73? That was just two weeks ago. This is 23 days later. I don't know about you, but over the course of 23 days, if I have an emotion 23 days ago, and then 23 days pass, by the 24th day, I don't even remember what that emotion was. 
That probably doesn't stick with me or stay with me. If I have an immediate reaction to something, and then now I, I do, go and do something else for over three weeks, and then I have a chance, I'm probably not going back to that emotion. But something so significant happened to the Israelites when they heard the law read. They were so moved. They were so bothered by something that now 23 days later, they go right back into weeping and mourning just like they were on day one. Why is that? What is it that bothered them so much? What is it that moved them so much that they would go right back into that on the 24th day? Well, I would suggest to you that when they heard the law read, when they heard the stories, there was this gigantic shift in perspective among the people between what they used to think about who God is and who they are and who they now think God is and who they now believe that they are. When they sat down and listened to God's word, there was this massive shift that took place among the people where they were rebuilding their wall. They were feeling good about what they were doing. They were moving in the right direction. They felt good about themselves. They were doing their work and saying, hey, we're good people that deserve good things from good God. And they were doing this, all of this work. And then they sat down and actually listened to the voice of God. And something so dramatic happened in them that changed their perspective, that it led them to weeping and mourning, not just in the moment, but now. Here again, over three weeks later. So what was it? Well, here in chapter 9, the Levites go through, those are the priests, those are the leaders, the religious leaders. They go through and they start to recount to God all the things that the people heard in the law that left them in this state. And we're not going to read it this morning, but what I, all of it this morning, but what I want us to notice is that in this recounting of all that God did and all the stories of the people, there's six comparisons that really stand out. Six places where they point out the actions of the, their people and the response of God. And as they look at the actions of the people and the response of God, their perspective on who they are and who God is completely and radically changes. Take a look at the first one. It's in verse 16 and 17. This is what the people say. Our fathers, our ancestors, we now realize, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. And then look how God responds. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. God, we read our history, and you know what we found out? We found out that our, our ancestors, they were actually pretty disobedient to you, but you forgave them every time. And then in verses 18 through 25, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, even when they made an idol and started to worship it. Maybe you remember this story. If you ever watched the Ten Commandments, that nine-hour movie that they show every Easter, you, you, see, you remember this scene where Moses goes up on the, on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and down at the base of the mountain, Aaron is left in charge. And, and they, they might have given Aaron too much responsibility too soon because what he does is he allows the people to build an idol and begin to worship the idol instead of God. And it says, even when, you had made, even when they made for themselves a golden calf, 
and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You, God, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. And then again in verse 26, and even after all of this, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind your back and killed your prophets. You were faithful to them, God. And then you sent them people to remind them of your love for them and your law, and they killed them. And in the time, but in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And the fourth one in verse 28, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to their mercies. God, we read in our history that our ancestors, they disobeyed you, and you showed them mercy, and then they just did it again, and you showed them mercy, and they did it again, and again, and again, and every time you showed them mercy. Verse 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. But God, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit. And finally, they would not give an ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Here's what's happening in the lives of these Israelites. They're sitting in slavery in the land that God promised them. So God brings his people out of Egypt, 40 years in the desert, finally gives them their own land, and now here they are, still living in that land that God gave them, but they're enslaved in that land to another kingdom. And you can imagine the things that they must have thought about God. God gave us this property, and now we're just enslaved in this land. It's just like it was back in Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt. God brings us out of that, leads us through a desert for 40 years, gives us our own land. For what reason? Just to enslave us again? And you could see them in that moment probably starting to draw conclusions like many people in our world draw today. If God is so good, and we're pretty good people then why in the world does he allow these things to happen to us? Why does God allow these bad things to happen? And so they started to draw conclusions. Well, maybe God isn't as good as we thought he was. Or maybe he's really not relevant to our everyday life. Or maybe he doesn't even exist at all. And they just kind of forgot about the relationship between them and their God. But then they sit down and they stand, well, they, they stand, then they stand and they listen to the law of God read. And all of a sudden, things begin to change in their hearts, and light bulbs start going off in their minds. Actually, you know what? God's been pretty good this entire time. God's been the one that's been showing us mercy. God's been the one that's been showing us grace. And we are the ones that time and time again have turned our backs on God. And we are the ones that have walked away from him. We're the one that created an idol. God didn't do that. We're the one that killed the prophets that he sent. God didn't do that. We're the ones that heard God's law and said we didn't want to do it and we walked away from it. Actually, we're the ones that do that. And and so you know what? This enslavement that we're in right now, maybe that has a whole lot more to do with our actions than with God's actions. 
And there's two giant perspective changes that happen in the mind of the Israelites in this moment. The first one is they realize and they begin to understand that, that actually it's God who's good and us that are not good. And actually God is good and we are not. Listen to what they say at the very end of this chapter in verse 33. Yet you, God, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Actually, God, you know what? Now that we look back at this, you're the one that's actually been faithful this whole time. You're the one that's been good this whole time. We're the ones that have been faithless. And we're the ones that have acted wickedly. And there's this giant perspective change that takes place in their hearts and their minds. And it's the exact same shift that has to happen in our hearts, in our minds, if we are to have a relationship with God and draw correct conclusions about him. We come to God and we say, God, you know what? I'm a good person. I am a good person. And so when we don't receive good things back from God or we think we don't receive good things back from God, we immediately conclude that the problem isn't with us. The problem is with God. And so we reject him. You know, one of the illustrations that I, I like to think of is what if we had a ladder? What if we had a ladder that reached from the ground up into the heavens? And we took that ladder, and at the top of the ladder, uh, we said it was, God was at the top of the ladder. And at the bottom of the ladder, uh, we said those are the people that are furthest from God. If we were to take that ladder, and, we were to say, and I was to say, okay, why don't you rank, why don't you rank people, uh, the people that you think are, are best and closest to God at the top of the ladder? Why don't we rank the people who we think are the best and closest to God? Think in your head, who would you put at the top of the ladder? If we had a ladder that started on the earth and went up into the heavens, and at the top of that ladder was God, and we said, okay, we're going to rank the people, who would you put on the ladder closest to God? Don't say Jesus. Jesus is easy. Well, who, who else? Who would you put on the ladder closest to God? Moses. Okay, Moses would be up there. But who like contemporary? Who's the contemporary person that we would, we would hold up to that standard? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, right? Mother Teresa, if we were to list Mother Teresa, she'd be way up there on the ladder. Who else would get way up there on the ladder? Billy Graham. Okay, Billy Graham would be way up there on the ladder. Here's the ironic thing about the ladder. Is if we brought Mother Teresa and Billy Graham into the room, I know that would be challenging to do, but let's say we brought them into the room. And we said to Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, listen, we've got this ladder here. It goes from the ground up to the sky. At the top of the ladder is God himself, and we're trying to rank all the different people as to where they are on the ladder. Uh, we have our idea, uh, Mr. Graham, where you are, and we have our idea, Mother Teresa, where you go. But where do you think they would put themselves on the ladder? At the bottom. It's just like the Apostle Paul, who was planting churches all over the place and wrote half the New Testament, said, of all the sinners in the world, I'm the worst, Paul writes. You say, well, how could Paul have that perspective? Because actually, Paul does a lot of great work for the kingdom of God. 
There would be a, a very small church today, perhaps, if Paul doesn't go and plant all his churches and write all his letters. Why is it that we hold people up to such a high standard, but if those people were to rank themselves, they would put themselves so far down the ladder? Because the ironic truth is, the further we stand away from God, the further we keep ourselves from Him, the greater distance that you and I keep in our hearts and our minds between us and God Himself, the better we think we are. You want to think that you're a good person. You want to think that you do everything you right. The only way that you can maintain that perspective is if you maintain a great distance between you and God. Because whenever you start to close that gap and get closer to God, and this is what happened to the Israelites as they read the law. This is what happens to a person like the Apostle Paul or to Billy Graham or to Mother Teresa as they continue to grow closer to God himself. The closer you get to God, the more you begin to realize that you don't even come close and I don't come even close to measuring up to who God is. If I want to maintain the idea that I'm a good person, then I have to maintain a great distance between me and God because if I get anywhere close, to God himself, all of a sudden I begin to realize that God is good and I am not. I heard a pastor say a long time ago, we love to think that it's God's world, that God's fingerprints are all over our world, but the reality is this is God's world and there are fingerprints. God created this world perfect and then we came in and we put our fingerprints on it and we messed it all up. Because it's not God who's imperfect, it's us. And that's a huge perspective change that needs to happen in my heart and your heart if we are ever going to be able to draw right conclusions about who God is. And it's exactly what happens in the hearts of the Israelites where they, when they hear the law. And the second thing that happens is they realize that even though God is good and we are not... If we will call out and cry out to God in our distress, and here's the key phrase, even if the distress is our fault, God will show us grace and mercy. If we call out to God in the midst of our distress, he's done it time and time again for our people. If we call out to him, even if it's our fault that we're in a bad place, God will show us grace and mercy. You know, some of us in this Christian walk, some of us, we find ourselves in a place where the perspective shift that needs to take place in our heart and our mind isn't that God's good and we're not. We fully understand that we are not good. In fact, we understand it so well that we find ourselves in a place where we are hurting and we are in distress and we are in despair and we are not crying out to God. We're not calling out to him because we feel so guilty that we have caused this thing ourselves that we don't even feel like it's worth bothering God with this thing because we're going to cry out to God and he's going to look back at us and be like, well, you caused it. This is your fault. So why don't you get yourself out of it? But that's not how God works at all. The people begin to realize that they're in slavery because of their own negligence of their God. Because they walked away from God, they're stuck in slavery. But they see time and time again in their history that if they will draw to God and they will confess 
that God will show them mercy. So this new proper perspective about God, that God is good and they are not, but if they'll cry out to them that God will show them mercy, leads the people now to a proper response. And that proper response is to confess before God their sins and to cry out to him and to ask him for mercy. And it's the exact same thing that has to happen in your heart and my heart if we're ever to experience the grace and mercy that is available to us through Jesus Christ. God sent his son down on this earth to die on the cross for our sins, not because we're good, but because he's good and because we're not. And so he had to do something to try and restore the relationship between us and him. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, down to this earth. Not once we were perfect, but like the apostle Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us. And if we will turn our hearts to God and cry out to him, then we will experience his mercy and his grace and his comfort and his goodness. But it will only be after we have the correct perspective on who we are and who he is. And I would suggest to you this morning that if we don't understand the depth of our own sin. It's because we don't understand the perfection and the holiness and the goodness of God. And if we understand that in our lives, we will begin to understand just how much we need him. And if you're in a position this morning where you're not calling out to God and you're not crying out to him. Know that if you would come and confess your sin to him and cry out to him, God will hear your cry and he will show you mercy. He always did for his people and he does even today. Even if you're in a situation that you feel like, listen, this is my fault. I put myself here. It's exactly where the Israelites were. They put themselves in this slavery. They abandoned God. And God allowed this thing to happen. But even in that place, where they feel like it's a result of their own decisions, God still hears their cries and still shows them mercy. The very end of this chapter, they say to God, we are in distress. But because of all of this, Because of all of this, because of all this truth about who you are and who we are, because of all of this reality that you're the God that continues to show mercy and grace even when we don't deserve it, because of all this, we are making a firm covenant with you. We are coming to you and confessing our sins and crying out to you, God, knowing that when we do, you will show us mercy. If you think God has abandoned you this morning, I can promise you he has not. If you think God is bad or weak or irrelevant or non-existent, I can assure you that he is not. He is a good and powerful and all-consuming God who desires to show us grace and mercy, but it requires us to have the right perspective and how we go after him and to realize that he's the one who's good and faithful. We're the ones who walk away. 
but that he's the God that has grace and mercy waiting for us. Hey, thanks again for listening to this sermon from the Belmont campus of Mount Hope. If you live in the Belmont area, we'd love to have you join us each Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you'd like to know more about Mount Hope Christian Center with campuses in Burlington and Belmont, Massachusetts, you can visit our website at www.mounthope.org.